If you've got a Bible, can you please turn with me to Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 31. We're going to be looking at the subject of Hagar and Sarah. For the life of me, I don't know why I didn't get sons and heirs. Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. Got it? (laughs) For she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, You who are not in labour. For the children of a desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, you brothers, like Isaac, are the children of promise. But just at the time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but the free woman. Well, that's easy, isn't it? Sometimes you just think, you sit there and you look at it and you think, look, even Dave Simpkins is frowning. (laughs) I will try my best, Dave, I really will. Okay, the allegory of Hagar and Sarah is written to persuade the Galatians and us not to follow the Judaizers into slavery with Hagar and Ishmael but to follow Sarah and Isaac into freedom. So this is about freedom. And I want to begin with a a definition of freedom. It's not my own, which actually is implied here. And then we'll have a look at the subject of freedom. So this this is what you want to know, isn't it? You want to know about full freedom. John Piper explains it like this. He says, full freedom is what is is what you have when no lack of opportunity, no lack of ability, and no lack of desire prevents you from doing what, we, you, what will make you happiest for a thousand years. In order to be free, in the fullest sense, you need to have 
opportunity, ability and desire to do what will make you happy in a thousand years. Another way to say all this and to try and make it simpler because I didn't understand John Piper either. Another way is to say that there are four kinds of freedom or four stages to freedom on the way to full freedom. So there's the freedom of opportunity to do what we can. The freedom of ability to do what we desire and to do what will bring us to uh, eternal joy. I then look for an illustration to try and understand um, uh, full freedom. The illustration that I looked at was bungee jumping and then I realised that I hadn't done it and I couldn't make the illustration work. So I chose another one and uh, this is it, skydiving. And I haven't done that either. (laughs) I just thought that was impressive. So skydiving. Let's take skydiving. I want you to know this. I've never done it, and I'm not going to do it either. So the illustration is poor in the fact that I haven't got a clue about these things. So let's take it like this. I want you to suppose that today, Mother's Day, you are all going skydiving after the service. Some of you will enjoy this, some of you won't. I want you to suppose that when you leave here, You're going to go home, change into some appropriate nappies ready for the skydiving, and then you're going to go home. Then you're going to go skydiving. You can go to whatever airport you like. So what you do is that you uh, get into the car and you drive down your road. And because of the frost, you have, which you probably haven't noticed up to this point, a huge pothole in your road. Your car goes over the pothole. You have a puncher. It makes you skid a little and you hit the lamppost. Now, you are no longer free to jump whether you have the ability or not. Because the opportunity will pass you while you are waiting for the AA and the plane goes up without you. You lack the freedom of opportunity. Yes? We all know that, don't we? We can do that in another way. We're all meant to go somewhere and suddenly something happens. Yeah, that's what that one is. Yeah, we all live like that, don't we? Yeah, familiar? I'm just doing skydiving. You can put your own. Right, let's take this on a little bit further. Suppose that you don't do the puncture, the pothole, the lamppost and all that sort of stuff, but you make it to the airport. But when you get to the airport, you have no ability whatsoever. You've never studied skydiving. You don't know the first thing about it. You, when somebody says you've got to put a parachute on, you go, what? You've got no idea about this. You've not done any research into it whatsoever. The opportunity's there, but you don't have the freedom of ability. You can't do it. You just don't have the knowledge to do it. You are in bondage to your own know-how. You don't know what you're doing. Haven't got a clue. How many of us have been there? Are oh, not so many. I'm now going to admit that one. Okay. Let's take this down to a third stage. Suppose you do make it to the airport and you have done all your research. You know everything that there is to know about skydiving. And you take off for your first jump. You are up there. And you look down 
and all your desire just goes. As fear, as Fleur described in worship, overcomes you. In fact, you are holding on to the side of the plane with a big size nine in your back as they are pressing you to go out of the hole and you are holding on to this plane at 30 odd thousand feet. Now, the truth is here, the opportunities there, the ability, the know-how, they're there, but you don't have the freedom of desire. You don't really want to do this at all. It's interesting. The, the interesting thing about freedom of desire is that you might go ahead and jump, but it will not be a free act. My father once told me that he had uh, skydived once. He said it was in a plane over Burma in the middle of the war. And he said he had no option out to do. He said he was thrown out of it and his parachute was connected by a little rod to a, to a wire in the plane. So it was the only time he ever did it. And that was it once. He had no desire to do this, but he did it. It was not a free act. So, for example, you might do this because your mates have set you a bet. They might have said to Rupert in a weak moment, Rupert, I bet you that you won't skydive. And Rupert, with his feet firmly on the ground, has said, yes, I will. And he's put his chest out and this sort of stuff. But actually, when he's got up there, he's like the rest of us. He's bricking it. Can you say that? No. <laughs> so the reason that he is doing this is not because he wants to feel exhilarated and full of sort of excitement. He's doing it because he thought he might be humiliated. He hasn't really overcome the desire to jump. So... You jump, and the emotional experience actually is not what you might call um, freedom at all. In fact, we wouldn't like to know, Rupert, what you would shout on the way down. It might start something like this, Our Father who art in heaven. (laughs) But actually, you don't have the freedom to do what you love to do. Now, I want to suggest that that's the way that all Christians try and live for Jesus. That actually, we try and live like this. That there are, for some of us, there, there are situations when actually we can't get beyond the pothole, the lamppost and the puncture. That that's how it is. That actually, as soon as something happens, we are spiritually disabled. We get a puncture, we get, a, we get a, a, a lamppost, and that's it. God's gone, church is gone, everything is gone. But I also want to suggest to you that life is full of potholes. The second people are those that try and do Christianity without the know-how. That actually you try and skydive not knowing what the parachute is, the planes like, the equipment that you should wear, the goggles, the height of it and all that sort of stuff. You basically are winging it. But you wouldn't jump out of a plane and yet you want to live in freedom without the know-how. The third one is 
that you are doing those things. Perhaps you have a little bit of know-how. Perhaps you've overcome the, the potholes. But actually, when you've jumped, you just thought, what? It just isn't what it was made out to be. So the product of those things can be that you go through outward motions of obedience. There isn't an inner thing of freedom in it. It's just, it's just outward obedience. And actually, the desire for, other th- for things that you think can thrill you really underneath is somewhere else. Galatians 4 verse 19. They do not enjoy the freedom of desire which Christ gives when they're be- which is formed in their heart. There's another and last requirement of full freedom. Suppose you get to the airport with no obstacles, no potholes. Suppose you know everything there is to know about North Wales. And suppose when the door opens, you go, North Wales, just look at that. Here I come. And the door is open and the wind is battling against your hair. Well, it might, not Dave Simpkins, but it's battling against the hair like this. And, you, and the instructor saying, no, just a little bit going, hold on, let me out of here. And sort of, you say, I'm going to run at it. So you step a few steps back like this. The instructor looks at you puzzled and you run at the door and you do exactly like You go out shouting, Geronimo! You have the freedom of opportunity because you've had no pothole. You have the freedom of ability because you've learned. You have the freedom of desire because you are actually enjoying it. Lunatic that you are, but you are enjoying it. But as you free fall, your parachute malfunctions. <laughs> it's like a burp. It would be that sort of thing, wouldn't really. it? Your parachute malfunctions. It will not open. Look, I, I, I tried this with bungee jumping. It didn't work with that. So don't add any more complications to this. You pull the spare one. And that doesn't work either. Okay, we've overcome that. Right, okay. Here we go. Are you free? Well, in the three ways, you are. Yes, you are free. In three ways. But the critical fourth one that you are doing so happily, doing so freely, is going to kill you. Whether or not that you know it, this may be your most exhilarating experience, but you are in bondage to destruction. In order to be free, it is not enough to have opportunity, ability, or even desire. The acts that you desire and perform must lead to life and not destruction. Because there are loads of people out there that will tell you that their life is far more exhilarating than yours, but it leads to destruction. This is why it's naive, young person, to envy the so-called freedom of those that throw themselves out of plain doors just for some sin. 
and exalt the exhilaration that they say, you are just boring. I am boring, but I have eternal life. They will tell you that there is the exhilaration of free fall sex. They'll tell you about the free fall of alcohol or partying. They'll tell you about the free fall of drugs. In fact, they will tell you free fall everything. But at some point, in all of those things, they will hit the ground with a mighty whack. It would be daft, would it not, to exalt the freedom of an exhilarating freefall if you knew it would destroy you. But person, if you are not a Christian here this morning, your freefall is destroying you. In order to be free, it's not enough to have an opportunity to be free or even the ability to be free or even the desire to be free. Freedom has to lead to eternal life. Therefore, a Christian can say that they will be happy in a thousand years because a thousand years is but a day. We might die tomorrow, but if we don't, we're still free. Therefore, Christians should be the freest people on this earth. And Paul is, fri- is fighting for this sort of freedom. And what he's saying is that actually what appears to be free is not. It's slavery and bondage. And freedom often, it's the one question I have about the freedom in Christ course a little bit. Because it's sort of saying, and, and sort of we can do that, that freedom is, is the icing on the cake for Christians. I don't believe that at all. I, I believe that freedom is the essence of Christianity. I don't believe that we ought to be, you know, it ought to be something that we experience every now and again for a little buzz. That no, it isn't, it isn't like that. It is a matter of eternity. Eternity has begun now. Therefore, joy has begun now. Therefore, freedom has begun now. Therefore, it can be enjoyed now. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you through a little bit of journey of those passages that I've been avoiding. And then what we're going to do is come back and I'm going to try and round it off at the end by making it very simple. Okay, so we'll take that out because it's not good for your heart, is it really? How did that guy do that? I don't know. Okay, so what the law teaches about freedom. Please bear with me with this because the verses are complex. I will try and make it short. In verse 21, Paul says that those who are turning back to the law of Moses as a job description for for how to receive the blessing from God should listen to what the law says. So what does the law teach us about freedom? Verse 22 and verse 23, in the passage that we read, it says this. It is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, and the son of the free was born according to a promise. 
So let's go back to Genesis 15, where all this comes from, and remind ourselves what happened to Abraham and Sarah. In Genesis 15, Abraham is cheesed off. He's fed up. He's downcast because he and Sarah have no children. And to fulfill the, and they have a promise on this hand, and that is that they have no children, but they are supposed to be the father and mother of a great nation. That's why they are fed up. There is only one answer at this point, and that is Eliezer, the slave. So God, knowing what they are thinking in regard to this slave, says, no, this man shall not be your heir. Your own son shall be your heir. So it was God's intention to give Abraham a son and an heir so that it would look utterly impossible and so that Abraham could could uh, so that Abraham would have to rely solely on God. I want it to look impossible and I want you to put all your eggs in my basket. So we move from Genesis 15 to Genesis 16. Abraham and Sarah weaken in their faith and they devise a plan to use their own resources to fulfill the promises of God. Sarah gives Hagar her handmaiden to Abraham so that she can bear him a son. And in Genesis chapter 16, verse 15, it says, Hagar bore a son and Abraham called the name of his son whom Hagar bore uh, to him Ishmael. So when Paul says in Galatians 4.23, which we have read, Ishmael is born according to the flesh, it means that he was a product of self-reliance. That's what it means. That Abraham stopped relying on God's promise, God's power, and relied on his own ingenuity and his own ideas to get what he thought God was telling him. It was a product of man and not of God. Now let's track on now 14 years. Ishmael is now 14 years old. He's a teenager. He's beginning to look a little bit uh, like young Harmon here is looking at me right now. Sort of hair a mess, cheesed off, you know, but actually he's really interesting. That's sort of what, let's give you an idea. This is Ishmael. Okay. In Genesis chapter 17, Uh, God says to Abraham that his wife Sarah will have a son. 14 years after Ishmael, God intends to fulfill his promise and says that he's doing that because he wants to remove all boasting. And in verse 17 to 19 of chapter 17, it says that Abraham, when reminded of this promise, fell on his face and laughed. That must have been quite funny because he's 100. You wonder whether he'd ever get up again, but he got down there. He fell on his face and he said to himself, whilst on the floor, shall a child be born to a man a hundred years? You can imagine what he, he must have rolled there, mustn't he? What are you on about, God? 86, just about. I'm three figures here, man. Did you see this week? The, the, the so-called 130-year-old lady drinking vodka. Did you see that on the telly? You should YouTube it. Okay. I mean, she was 130. They were keeping her alive with vodka. I mean, they, 
the when the great grandchildren were coming along to kiss her, you thought they're never going to come out from those lips alive. Should they go on in there? But so you could just get and imagine what this wrinkly old fella would have looked like. And he, would, he is just laughing at himself. Then he's on the floor laughing, and then he looks up, and who's there but Sarah? I don't know whether she's just walking by, you know, whatever. So he's rolling around thinking to God, Look, I'm a hundred. Sarah goes by and he goes, and she's 90. He just looks at this sort of stuff. So he has an idea. And his idea goes like this. I don't know whether by then they're both on the floor. So, but he's still, the funny thing is that he's rolling on the floor and he's still talking to God. See, there they are. They're both on the floor. I don't know. He is. We don't know about him. He says to God, Oh, Ishmael might live in or oh that ishmael might live in your sight so he says look come on guys up in heaven trinity and all that sort of stuff you know we've got no chance here i'm 100 she's 90 why don't you give ishmael a chance god is very short he bellows from heaven no and then carries on and says but your sarah will have a son And you will call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. So God rejects exactly what Abraham was able to produce by his own promises in spite of Abraham's child. He will have a son by his own wife. Track on, Genesis 21. The Lord visits Sarah. See, it wasn't whether this... 100-year-old guy had got, what do you, I, I've got to be careful now, I? a great libido. Is that what you, can I say that bit? Can you edit that bit? I'll do something with it. Put something sanctified in that, you know. It, it wasn't anything, to, and it wasn't either whether this 90-year-old had been to, been to Marks and Spencers and bought, you know, that was nothing to do with it at all. What is the issue here? It's not, I know, I know you're my daughter, but just get over this. But it isn't anything to do with the performance of man or the performance of women. Whatever they did in this department, which I'm now not to talk about because my daughter's here. It, it is solely this. The Lord visited Sarah. That's it. And Sarah received what the Lord had promised. Isaac was born Accord, uh, uh, was not born according to the flesh because of his birth. Isaac was born due because of a, a supernatural intervention and because of a promise from God. Here's the promise, and it's the answer is supernatural. That is always it, folks. If there's a promise, the answer is always supernatural. Sometimes people say, you have to walk towards the promise. No, the answer is supernatural. God does it. Abraham learned a lesson. The only acceptable response to a merciful promise is trust that the promise works. Not works of the flesh to bring down blessings by anybody's efforts, but we have a promise, so we trust in it. If you have said, I trust it. 
You said I'm going to be pregnant, therefore one day I will. That's not me, that's Sarah. Okay, just clear that out. So we get to Galatians chapter 4 verse 23. And Paul summarizes the story and says, The son of the slave was born according to the flesh, the son of the free woman through the promise. Okay, that's the easy bit. This is where it gets complex. This did my head in. I have to, you know. This is about to do yours head in. But I'm really happy about that because it did mine in this week, so you can have some. Here we go. Verse 24 says that Paul sees an allegory in these events. I thought he saw an allergy, but it's an allegory. So he didn't. I'm glad you got that one. He sees something more than literal meaning. That's what it means. Paul says that the truth implied in the stories about Hagar and Sarah is the same truth that we can see in Mount Sinai and happens in present Jerusalem. That's how he sums it. Don't frown, Rose, we'll get there. So it is a legitimate story to use this one and apply it to ourselves. But it is complex. Right, here we go. Are you with me? You need to be attentive. Are you ready, Patty? Lean forward. Okay, that's it. Right? To help you, I'm going to do this in Swedish first. (laughs) Then I will do it in Welsh. Here we go. Are you ready? It gets simpler after this. According to verse 24, Hagar and Sarah represent two covenants. First, he focuses on Hagar and says one, that's covenant, is from Mount Sinai. Bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Hagar is Mount Sinai. But she corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children that she has. So the key question here is, how is Hagar and her affair with Abraham and their son Ishmael like Mount Sinai? Mount Sinai is the giving of the law through Moses. There are two similarities. You're glad there's not 14. There are only two, at least. Well, I'm only going to do two. Here they are. Let's try and work it out. Hagar, giving birth to Ishmael, is done, as you would agree, according to the flesh. Verse 23. Abraham and Hagar tried to get God's promised blessing through their own strength and not relying on supernatural enablement. That is exactly what happened when the law was given at Mount Sinai. Instead of humbling themselves and trusting God that he would do everything that he's promised, they ignored that. In fact, they start off by not ignoring it. It says, it says, they said, all the words which you have spoken to us, we will do. Then, they didn't have a heart to do that. Or they didn't want to depend on him. So, like Hagar, the people at Mount Sinai decided that they would be able to do this God stuff in their own way and with their own resources. So like Hagar and Abraham, that they depended on their own uh, ability. And just as Ishmael was uh, just, and, and just as Ishmael 
was born according to the flesh, so the law was not received because it says in Romans it was weakened by the flesh. All that Abraham and Hagar had produced on their own was a son that would be, uh, that w- who would not be their heir. And all that Israel produced because they did not do the law uh, in God's strength or supernaturally was nothing but legalism. They inherited nothing. That's it. Which leads to the second similarity between Hagar and Mount Sinai. Both of them bear children for slavery. Verse 24 says the covenant uh, Hagar represents is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. Since Ishmael was not an accepted as an heir, he was no better than his mother, a slave. And when the Israelites take the law upon themselves and try and live it without trusting God and try and live it without supernatural enablement, they become slaves to the law. They are slaves and their children become slaves because they, are, because they have no freedom to do the law from their heart. So their disobedience excludes them from the inheritance and the blessing. Now to bring the allegory up to date. You still with me? Stop yawning, Phil. I'll get exciting in a minute. Or I get excited. But uh, that's because, Right, to bring the allegory up to date, at verse 25, Paul said, she corresponds to present Jerusalem. What on earth is that about? For she is in slavery to her children. This is a direct attack to the Judaizers who have come from Jerusalem. Chapter 2, verse 12. They are the children of Jerusalem. And they are slaves to the law and to demonic forces. Chapter 4, verses 3 and verse 8. So that you can see Paul's point. He's basically saying, don't follow these guys. They may tell you that they are are coming as sons of Abraham. They may tell you that, that you will receive the blessing from Abraham. But beware, because with them you will be an Ishmael or an Isaac. You will end up a slave and not an heir. We're nearly there. Verse 26, Paul then turns his attention to the other half of the allegory. Sarah and a child, Isaac, he skips over the mention of covenant and he gets right up to date and he says, but the Jerusalem that you want to know is free. Not, the, not those people come from you. You want to know a free Jerusalem. What does he mean by a free Jerusalem? The Jerusalem that sets you free is a different sort of life. And he's referring to uh, some, the sort of verses where you can see in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, if then you've been raised by, from Christ, seek the things that are above, the new Jerusalem, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, where your minds should be uh, set on things that are above, not on things of the earth, where you have died and your life is hid. The success for you is not based on earthly experience, but by a heavenly experience that comes from there. Basically, the heavenly place is the dwelling place with God. Get yourselves into the dwelling place of God. So Jerusalem represents that. And our life and our freedom flow from him. We are citizens of that city. And Sarah represents that city. And she gave birth to Isaac. And, uh, and, her reli- and, and uh, it was an act of God. 
Therefore, spiritually speaking, she is the mother of all Christians. So I just want to do a, a little Catholic thing. Mary is not the mother of all Christians. Because the Bible tells us who that is. Galatians tells us that. That actually, this Mother's Day, Sarah is your mum. Through promise. So I hope that when you all go home, you've got something for Sarah. Or that when you get to heaven, you say, thank you ever so much because I have inherited your promise. She's your mum. Hello, mum, when you go to heaven, just introduce yourself. She will probably be over. Can you imagine the Mother's Day card she's going to get in heaven? <laughs> hey, and the chocolates and the flowers and all that sort of stuff. No wonder she has many mansions. She's going to have to have the whole field, isn't she? But there you go. Don't dwell on that because I'll be in trouble with the Catholics. Okay, so, so Paul in verse 28 says, Now we brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. Our life is not like Ishmael's, simply owing to the work of men. Our life is owing to the work of God and a fulfillment of the promise. Confirmed in verse 29, but at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him according to the spirit, so it is now. So the difference between Ishmael and Isaac is simply this. One, the one supernatural, the other one not. And in verse 30, we are assured that we are not Ishmael types, we are not Judaizers, but we are Isaac types. And that potentially there is an extraordinary blessing that can receive, that can come to us because of this promise, even though we may be persecuted, which is what the text says. Finally, Paul concludes in verse 31 that we receive our promises by faith in the Son of God. We don't rely on what we can achieve on our own. If we do, we will, f- we will fall back into slavery. You're supposed to clap me at that point. <laughs> Thank you. Not too much, dear. Okay, freedom of the children of promise. Let's try and put this into simple terms because that's all been a bit complex. We need to go back to our definition of freedom. Freedom is what you have when there is opportunity, ability and desire to do what you want that will make you happy for a thousand years. Surely that's what I want. Surely that's what you want. You just want to be free. You want to know full freedom. To have the the occasion, the ability to do what you love and with the result of uh, living in perfect joy forever. If that's what you want, then this this is what Galatians 4 is all about. This is about you. This text is for you. It's crucial for you. And Paul's saying, I don't want you to be an Isaac. I want, uh, sorry, an Ishmael. I want you to be an Isaac. So the question is, why aren't the Ishmael types free? And why is it that we, we know that we should, be, we should be Isaacs, but we slip back into being Ishmaels? They are not free because they lack the desire to rest in God's promises. Do you rest in the promises that God has for you. It's quite simple. I told you we get simple here. The promises that God has in his word for you, the promises that he's prophetically given, are you resting in those promises? Second question. 
Abraham and Hagar wanted blessing on their own terms. Not on God's terms. Not in God's way. How do you want your blessing to come? Does God have to do this and that and the other and the other and then? Or are you prepared to have God's blessing any way, shape or form it comes to you? Or have you put conditions in your mind in regard to the blessing of God? Do you want God on your terms or on his terms? Now the Judaizers did want God's blessing, but they wanted God's blessing on their own terms. And there are Ishmael types in every age. They want it their way, And with their own conditions to it. I had a moment this week when I got to this point. Because at this point, I realised that I was trying to sum up what the problem of the Judaizers were. And the problem of the Judaizers, we're coming to an end now, is this. That they were just, had become complex Christians. And I I just started to pray. And then I started to sing. And then I, 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 through a strange series of events, my life went a bit balmy from this point onwards because I started to think what I used to sing when I was little. Because I kept thinking, Lord, I don't want to be a complex Christian. I just want it simple and easy and I want to love it. I want to really enjoy it. And as I was in my upstairs bedroom, which is that's the week when I, you know, when I was just in the upstairs where I work, I started to sing this. I started to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to belong to him, we are weak and he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. And I was just, the yes, Jesus loves me. And after a while I kept thinking, you are just so complex, Nigel. I was telling myself, the I I used to sing those things. I used to go around thinking, yes, Jesus loves me. And do you know what? I sang them and I was vigorous about them and I was passionate about them. I rang Phil Harmon. So I said, right at the end, Phil, I want to sing this song. And he went, what? (laughs) I said, do you know this? And he said, yes. So we went, all right then. So we're going to sing this at the end, folks. I put the phone down and the phone rings. It's Steve Hawkins. So he said to me, what have you been doing? I thought, oh dear. (laughs) So I said, I've been singing, yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. And he goes down the phone going, I am H-A-P-P-Y. I am H-A-P-P-Y. I know I am. I'm sure I am. I'm H-A. And I thought, when I put the phone down, I was going, yes, I am L-O-V-E-D. I am L-O-V. And I just went, I do not want to be complex any longer. I began to think, I am enjoying this. And then I was transported back to a prayer meeting last Sunday. And I realised that you all looked at me as if I'd gone loony. Because I said, let's sing 
This is the day, this is the day that the Lord has... And I looked up and they were all going, oh. Because I kept thinking, he has made me glad, he has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. And you were all going, no, it'll go, it'll just pass in a minute. No, Jesus has made me glad. Why should it pass? That's the thing. Why have I become so mature, so incredibly complex that I can't sing, I am HGPP, what has gone wrong with me? I have become a Judaizer. I have become so complex that I no longer look for the promises that I just become on something extra. Tittle my brain. Scratch my feet. But do not sing, this is the day that the Lord has made. Why not? I've just read, how complex have you become? How complex have I become? I do not receive the blessing like this. I'm sorry I'm passionate, but it was such a lovely moment. I just kept thinking, oh, yes, Jesus loves me. I kept thinking, this is fantastic. Fat fish couldn't write that. I could write that. When was the last time you heard Stuart Townend write, I am a JPPY? Come on! It is superb. I just go, I'm L O V E D. I'm going to heaven. We need to end. <laughs> Let me just talk seriously. I believe a hardness of our heart can develop when we put the simplicity of the gospel to one side and spurn really a childlike dependence on God. I believe that what the Judaizers is doing, I believe that what you can do, what can I do, is almost complicate our understanding that the only product is that we become proud, superior, clever Christians. I'll just check whether Nigel was right in verse 23. I have a word for you. B-H-A-P-P-Y. Stop it. Be childlike. Do you know, I read this. Psychologist wrote this. This is not Christian. This is not a Christian. Psychologist wrote this. Every one of us knows the most common use of our mind is to justify our desires. Therefore, deeply wrong desires will deeply mislead the mind until it is not able to understand what is right. I wonder how complex your mind has become. You're just losing the simplicity of God. So Ishmael types are not free because they lack the freedom of desire to rest in the promises. Enjoy the grace. Live in heaven, on earth. Brothers, sisters, we are people of the promise. We are people of the Holy Spirit. The essence of what God has done for me is that we have a miracle new birth. I am a new creation, full stop. 
The wonder is that Jesus would give himself up for me. The power of Christianity is the Holy Spirit. The hope of Christianity is heaven. The hallmarks of us Isaac type, surely should we, that we have been saved, changed, transformed, and Jesus is at the center of everything. And I'm just thrilled to be there and be with him. That I will prefer to rest in him rather than become complex and miss the blessing. We hate the tendencies. We should hate the tendencies to be complex. We should stop trusting ourselves. We should throw everything that we have and say, Lord, yeah, not my will be your, but yours. Is your delight in Jesus? It really is as simple as that. The Bible talks about choicest food. Is his word your choicest food? Do you love the idea of being filled with the Spirit? I think this is what Paul means when he says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. His passion is my passion. My passion is his passion. The two are entwined. We just, what's the difference between, G, between Judaizers and uh, Isaac types and Ishmael types? Ishmael types just l- love Jesus lots. <laughs> Sorry? Isaac types just love Jesus most. Let me just read to you what Paul said. I think this might be David next week. (laughs) So I'm sorry. So I'll just read it and then I'll shut up. It says, For freedom that Christ has set you free. Therefore do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Jesus did it. Therefore... Surely we should fight everything that it is to get rid of complex stuff and enjoy the Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. So we're going to stand, and I'm ever so sorry, but I'm going to really enjoy it. We're going to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Yeah? I know this is going to be very difficult. Please enjoy it. It's fantastic truth.